0: Well, church, let me invite you to find your way to the fourth psalm this morning, so we'll spend time in God's Word together. You'll find that on page 448 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you would like to use that. And uh, we're we're now kind of in our little summer series in the psalms, kind of getting into the less popular psalms, and um, they may become increasingly less popular as we go. Uh, And it's interesting, um, to be perfectly honest... As I wrestled with Psalm 4 for quite some time, and um, we'll see what the Lord has given me. And, and uh, you know, I'm th- very thankful that what I get to teach you this morning is I consider to be uh, the very words of God. And uh, knowing that, it gives me some, some freedom that what I might have might not be the, the best sermon for, um, that I preach, but it's always God's Word, and I trust that His Word will go forth as I mentioned, I struggled a bit with this psalm, and it's hard to find the, the, the theme that brings it all together, and so you might want to, as you listen to this sermon, um, rather than kind of getting the big picture, though I think there's a big picture, and I'll try to present it to you, there might just be something here or there that you can take away, and there might be a, a word of God for you in this particular verse or that particular verse, and so be listening for God to speak to you, I think, in that way this morning. And of course, we'll go verse by verse, and so I encourage you to have the Bible open this morning. As we consider the very word of God. So hear now the word of God from Psalm four to the choir master with string instruments, the Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who, will, who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will, lie, I will both lie down and sleep. For you al- alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Our Father, we are thankful now that we can come and hear from you. And that's our prayer, isn't it, this morning, Father, as it is every Sunday, as it is every time we open the Word. Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. We long to hear from our God today. We long to know his ways. We long to know his will. And so we humbly come and ask you to be gracious to us and speak to us. I trust you would do a good work and conform our hearts and you would encourage us and challenge us, maybe rebuke us. And I might leave here having a profitable time hearing from you. Leave here more like Jesus as we seek to be a more faithful disciple. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a hero of mine, as uh, you often hear on Sunday mornings, this is a man named John Patton, a missionary to the island of Tana in the South Pacific in the 19th century. What was interesting about John Patton's ministry was that the island was inhabited by cannibals, some of the last cannibals on the earth. He was warned, uh, he was a pastor in Scotland, and he was warned by an older and less missions loving pastor um, named Mr. Dickerson who said to him, you will be eaten by cannibals. Well, Patton's reply was, is famous. Mr. Dickerson, he said, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will be as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Well, John Patton did go to uh, the island of of Tana, and he faced unimaginable uh, hardship and difficulties, but one hardship which he did not face was he was not eaten by the islanders despite their best efforts. Uh, He writes of one particular night in his autobiography when he took refuge from hungry cannibals searching for him throughout the night up in a tree. He would write, I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches, as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among the chestnut leaves. And the night air played on my throbbing bough, as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone and yet not alone. And if it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul alone, all alone in the midnight in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself. Have you a friend that will not fail you then? Do you? you have a friend in that midnight hour who will not fail you? Patton, of course, experienced an extraordinary evening, Um, extraordinary in many ways, of course, extraordinary that people were hunting for his life, but then the the peace that he enjoyed up, up a tree, You know, in some sense, hoping to make it till dawn, and and in some sense, hoping dawn would never come for the consoling fellowship that he experienced with Jesus. Such incredible peace in troubling times is something similar that it seems that David was experiencing according to Psalm 4 his opponents who he uh, preaches to even in verse 2 and following of course are not out to eat him are they but they are out to overthrow them it seems now the context of psalm 4 is very difficult to determine uh, some have suggested that psalm 4 is a continuation of psalm 3 which we considered last time that the occasion of course if you remember was Absalom David's son's revolt against him and so it might be that he's, he's still dealing with that, that coup d'etat. But it's probably, and, and, and about half the commentators that I read, and this is where I kind of land, is that David's dealing with some type of famine, some type of uh, terrible drought, some type of humanitarian crisis. And you see in verse 6, I think he drops hints for us. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some, some good? In other words, they're saying, which God will be good to us? Because the current God isn't. And then in verse 7, he mentions, you have put more joy in my heart than when they have, um, when they have their grain and, and their wine abound. I think he mentions grain and wine because this is what the people are longing for at that time. And so it might be, it probably doesn't make a big, uh, a big difference, but it might be that there's some humanitarian crisis happening. And David, King David, is feeling the heat. He's feeling the heat from the prominent and the powerful and the leading class of people. You see in verse 2, you see, he begins to address his opponents and he says, O men but your Bible probably has a little footnote there by the word men, doesn't it? And if you drop down, you see an alternative way to translate this, according to in my Bible at least, is, oh, men of rank. It's literally son of men. But it's this idea that he's referring to the prominent men, the, the, the leaders, the business uh, tycoons, the wealthy, the political advisors. It's those people that are turning on King David and turning on David's God. Seems to be that they're seeking foreign gods and standing in opposition to David as they do. And in the midst of this kind of political crisis and humanitarian disaster, David gets to this point in the end of his psalm and concludes in verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In other words, you may be hiding up a tree from cannibals, or you may be having all the political opponents defaming your God and defaming you, and at the same time... You can sleep in peace. Psalm 4 has historically been called an evening psalm because of verse 8. Psalm 3, by the way, which we studied last week, is a morning psalm. You see in verse 5 of Psalm 3, I lay down and slept, and I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. In other words, the, the Psalm 4 often was used in church history as a psalm in which individuals would read at bedtime. In fact, in Psalm 127, It says, the Lord grants sleep to those he loves. You know that gift? A peaceful sleep? You experience that? Or do you toss and turn? you find yourself wrestling with your pillow and staring at the ceilings, ceiling as the cares of life buffet you? Or do you you lie down in the hands of God and find peaceful sleep? You see, for many, peaceful sleep is is an elusive gift, isn't it? It's something that they don't experience I think the reasons for that are many. Many of them are physical, aren't they? Sometimes they're spiritual. And sometimes the anxieties of our life, they keep our eyes open when they should be shut. They keep our brain from shutting off. So, how is it that you can find this peaceful sleep? I've told you in the past, I believe, that that my children often, when they go to bed, like to play Daddy's sermons. And they're asleep within seconds, right? So, you might want to try that. But perhaps a a more biblical way to find this peaceful sleep is to do so how David did. And it's probably no surprise that I will exhort you, as the psalmist often will, to begin by depending on God. It seems like this is the first exhortation that we see David bring to us, that in the midst of these times, we must begin with our dependence on God. You see, David doesn't start very peaceful, does he, in verse 1, answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And so you see what he says. Answer me, he says. Hear my prayer, he says. He sounds desperate, doesn't he? A lot like maybe a lost child calling for his daddy. Of course, he is God's child, but he is not lost. He is being instead slandered, as you see in verse 2. Verse 2 consider this more at length in a moment, but he says, oh man, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? And so they're they're slandering David, they're opposing David, and in his trouble, interestingly enough, before he addresses those who oppose him, which he will, he pleads with God. Now I think there might be just a kernel of wisdom there, that when you are in conflict with others, before you go to them, it might be wise to go first to God and talk to him about it. So before you send the email or fire off the text, it might be good to walk away from the computer for a little while and talk to the Lord. Get alone. Lord, I need to talk to you about this conflict. I need to talk to you about this situation in my life. As David seems to be doing, he comes to God first, depending upon God in the midst of his conflict. In fact, he even reminds God of the past grace in which he has received you see that there in verse 1. You have given me relief when I was in distress. You know, we, of course, don't know what David's talking about. Perhaps he's referring to an earlier time when he was hiding in a cave from Saul, and that very Saul, his enemy, found his way to that cave to find some relief, if you remember that story, and yet God protected David at that time. Or maybe maybe he's thinking of an earlier time when God guided the stones from the hand of his youth to take down a giant. You have given me relief, he says, past tense, you see that, when I was in distress. So he's thinking about how God has blessed him in the past in order to help his heart depend upon him in the present. So I don't know if you ever don't do that. I don't know if you—it's your practice in the middle of trouble and trial to look back and to survey how it is that God has helped you, how He has brought you through past troubles in order to strengthen your faith during present troubles. Uh, a number of years ago, for instance, I was uh, fired from a church. I was in my uh, early 30s at the time, and. Um, I had been pastoring, serving on staff there for about a year and a half. Uh, Allegra and I had uh, uh, our, our daughter, Anna, was about one, and we were expecting our son, Josiah, in October, and it was May. So I was fired a couple months before um, our second son was born. And I don't know if you know anything about how churches hire pastors, but typically it takes about three years or something like that. Okay? I think I went through 16 interviews to get this job. So it's, you know, it, Churches do not move quickly. And, of course, I wanted to continue to minister, and, and so I'm thinking, oh, I have a child, and I have another child on, on my way, and, and, and now I, I don't have a job. I don't, I, I, we just bought a house. Well, how are we going to do this? You know what God did? He provided. Now, the money didn't float down from heaven, by the way. He provided me with a job, and then uh, another job, and another job. And so I worked one full-time job, and Sold backpacks on the weekend and, and taught at community college. And so God provided. God, God blessed me. And God comes. And you ever think about how it is that God has helped you in the past in order to uh, uh, strengthen your faith in the, in the present? Think about it. That's what David seems to be doing in this distress. God, you have given me relief. And I know you can do it again. In fact, one of the things that I've been blessed so much by, and even in my studies of the psalms, is that the psalmists are already impacting the way I pray. They're teaching me how to pray. In fact, we'll see in the next psalm, that uh, uh, little phrase that I've been praying uh, frequently, in Psalm 5, Lord, lead me in the paths of righteousness. I want, want, today I'm going to walk a path I want you to lead me in righteousness. And the psalmist is constantly praying, he's constantly depending upon God. And I think it's, we would do well to kind of, as a student, just come and sit, gather around the psalmist and say, I want to, I want to pray more like what I see you praying. And so he helps us here. He says, you've given me relief. Let God's past strengthen you today as you seek his grace, which is ultimately what he's after as you see the end of verse one. Be gracious to me, he says. And hear my prayer. I love that little verse there, that, that little line there at the end of verse one. I wonder if you do well to what is it to commit those eight words to memory: "Be gracious to me and hear my prayer." I think it's important because you see, David has no right to demand anything from God. You notice David does not appeal to his own goodness; he doesn't say, "I'm a good man, therefore hear my prayer." But he appeals to God's grace. In other words, I don't deserve you to answer me, but I'm, I'm appealing to your character, not mine. It reminds me of that story when Jesus encountered those Jewish leaders, the, the, the sons of men in his day, who approached Jesus on behalf of the centurion and his servant. Do you remember that story? And this centurion's servant is, is ill. In fact, he, he seems to be dying, and these Jewish leaders come to Jesus, and, and they say, Jesus, will you come and, and heal this man's servant? But what's interesting is the argument that they use to get Jesus to comply, and they go to Jesus. Do you remember what they said? They said, this man is worthy to have you help him. They say, he, he loves our nation, Jesus. Don't you see that? He built our synagogue, Jesus. He's kind to his servant, Jesus. And they they lay out before Jesus this man's worth in the hopes that that will convince Jesus that he is worthy of this healing. This is how religion works, isn't it? Do this, right? Don't do that right, keep the law, read, pray, do the five pillars, right, all the rest, you know, just here it is, here's the things to do, you, and if you do them well enough, then of course you have earned something from God, right, and when you need him, well, because you have done this, then God will come and, and help you because of what you've done. Interestingly enough, by the way, Jesus comes to this man's house, and as he draws close to the centurion's home, remember the centurion, he's coming to Jesus' home, and the centurion runs out of his house to stop Jesus from coming into his house. Remember his message. I am not worthy for you even to come into my home and just say a word of my servant will be healed. And and it's all you know, you wonder what's going on here. It's almost as if the Jewish leaders got back to the centurion and they're all excited. And they come to him and said, Jesus is coming. We convinced them. We told him how great you are and all that you've done. And the centurion said, I'm sorry, you told him what? (laughs) You told him I'm worthy? And he runs out to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, I'm not worthy. I'm not asking you for what I've earned. I'm not appealing to my goodness. I'm appealing to your grace. That's very interesting to me. Because he, listen, he does not say, I'm worthy, therefore do this, like the Jewish leaders. Nor does he say, I'm not worthy, therefore don't do it. He he doesn't say, why should you listen to someone like me? I withdraw my request. I'm not worthy. But he says to Jesus, I'm not worthy, so please do what I ask. What is he asking for? Grace. The same thing David seems to be asking for. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You know what Jesus says in response? Finally. (laughs) Finally. He says, I've been looking all over Israel. Finally, I have found someone who gets it? So I wonder, in light of this truth, how do you pray? Right? Do, you, do you present your merit before God? You know, now God, I've been good and I've been doing what you've told me to do, and I've been kind to my spouse and all the rest. I need a little bit of help here. You appeal to your own goodness, or do you appeal to God's grace? Right? We've been. We, uh, Craig came up and prayed for us this morning. We've been praying for Craig, of course. He let the church know a number of weeks ago that uh, he has cancer. And we're praying for Craig that God would heal his cancer. Psalm 6 will teach us to pray for healing, interestingly enough. But I, I want to be clear. And I, In fact, I spoke about Craig uh, this week ago and even again this morning. Though we pray for Craig's healing, Craig does not deserve to be healed. You understand that? And so we don't, we don't go to God and say, okay, God, Craig served our church. And Craig's taught our Sunday school class, and Craig keeps our books, and, 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 and Craig, you know, he, he pastors the people, so therefore heal him. He's done all this, therefore you should do this, God. I mean, uh, how are you praying for Ben and Barbara, Terry and Mark and Doug and Shelly? How are you praying for Frank and Dick and Ginny and Mary and Anne and Ray and Gail and Paul and Fran and Lynn and Kim? All people, by the way, the elders gathered around on Thursday night and prayed for. How are we praying for them? Do you stand on the quick stand stand of your own goodness and say, I'm good, they're good, therefore do this? Or do you stand upon the rock of God's grace? Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Maybe you come into this room today and you're limping a bit. Maybe you feel unstable today. Know that your God is gracious. Maybe even now you would pray in your heart. Lord, I have nothing to commend myself to you. I have earned no blessings from your hand. But are you not merciful? Are you not gracious? Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. As David teaches us how to depend upon God, he now turns to to the people. See, David prays, and then he preaches. And he calls on the people, particularly his opponents, to honor God. And consider, secondly, as we think about how to live at peace with God in the midst of troubling times, we are to honor God. Notice verse 2. O men, he says, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? So he begins by addressing, as I mentioned, the leadership class that have turned on David, the Lord's anointed. They're slandering David. They're calling into doubt David's right to rule. His integrity is being called into question. They're, they're trampling upon his honor, David says. Strangely, it's interesting to me that David turns to them and he, he calls for them to think deeply about what they're doing. He's calling for them to repent. He seems to be seeking reconciliation with them. He says, listen, how long are you guys going to keep this up, he says. Don't you, don't you think that you, you ought to be a little bit wiser, a little more godly than this? As they slander David. I don't know if you've ever been slandered before. I trust that you have. I was, my, even my, my, my children, as we were uh, learning this psalm last night in our family worship, I asked my kids, has anybody ever called you names? And it seemed like everyone has experienced that. And that's something we experience in this life, isn't it? We, we, the world slanders people that they don't like. In fact, the greatest statesman that Athens ever produced was a man named Aristides. He was called the just. And many voted to condemn this man. In fact, when one was asked why why he voted to condemn him, he said, I voted against him because I was tired of hearing him called the just. There's no like that kind of person. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that. The disdain of people for no good reason. Well, if you have, you're in good company. David experienced it as well. And, of course, not David. David just foreshadows our Lord, isn't he? When the sons of men in his day, the leadership class in his day, mocked him, saying, if you truly are the king of Israel, come off the cross, and then we will believe in you. And David calls for them to honor the Lord's anointed and asks a second question in verse 2. He says, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. See, they're not just lying about David. They're actually seeking after lies. In fact, I think that phrase, seeking after lies, is best understood that they're seeking after idols. One translation puts it this way, how long will you love delusion and seek false gods? See, they're not simply turning on the Lord's anointed, they're turning against the Lord himself, and it's probably because God is not providing what they want. So they'll seek after gods who will. That seems to be the world that we live in, to to me, that men and women are, are worshiping whatever pays out, whatever gives the desires of their heart. And they seek after delusion. They seek after false gods. One of the greatest preachers ever was a man named Chrysostom. I think he, John Chrysostom. I think he was in the seventh century. He was called the, the Silver Tongue. And he once, in reflecting on Psalm 42, he said, "If he were the fittest on earth to preach a sermon to the whole world gathered together in one location, and had the, a hot, some high mountain for his pulpit, and was furnished with a voice of brass, he could choose to preach on no other verse." Than this one here in Psalm four too. how long will you love delusion and seek after false gods? Well, David calls for them, calls them to account, and he affirms that God is going to hear the prayers of the godly. You see that in verse three. It seems to me he's referring to himself when he says, "But you know that the Lord has set apart the godly for." himself right God has set me aside David said I God has chosen me and you remember that don't you when Samuel came looking and went to the house of Jesse and 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 David's daddy brought out David's older oldest son oldest older brother brought out his oldest son and he was strong and, and big and and he said how about this one and remember Samuel said no no not that one and he brought in another one. He said, well, this one's tall and handsome. How about this one? No, not that one. And on and on he went, one after another, until he had no more sons. And S- Samuel said to David's father, Do you, have you no other boys? And his answer was, well, I mean, no. I mean, we got, we got David, but he, he's the sheep boy. I mean, he's just out mad. You don't want David. And God says, that's my man. That's the one I want. And it seems that when David says, God set aside the godly, has a very personal meaning for him, doesn't it? And he warns. See, see what he's doing. He's warning his opponent that in rejecting me, you're rejecting God's choice. In, in fact, because he's chosen David, God is going to listen to him. You finish verse 3, and what he says, the Lord hears when I call to him. So, in other words, God didn't choose me to stop listening to me, David says. God didn't, God didn't choose me and then abandon me, and so beware you need to understand who you're slandering. You're opposing God's man, and God will hear when I call. It's almost like the, it reminds me of the kind of the age-old argument out in the schoolyard playground. You know, you know my dad can beat up your dad. right? Well, David's dad is God, and he's letting them know that. He says, he's going to come when I call. He's going to hear me because he has set me aside. Now, the wonderful thing, friends, is, is that verse 3 is, is true of you as well. Has God not also set you aside? Has he not chosen you to be his? And the Bible tells us, for instance, in Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. The God of the universe has set you aside for himself. And if he has, then he will hear you when you pray. That's what David's teaching us. What father will not pick up the phone when his daughter calls? If you're his child, he will hear you. In fact, I don't know if you noticed the change already in David from verse one to verse three. Right, verse one, he's saying, answer me. And now verse three, he will answer me. As he begins to preach to those who stand in opposition to him, it seems like he's preaching to his own heart, as any preacher has experienced. And so he kindly exhorts his enemies to turn from their sin and to honor God. In fact, he gets specific about their sin there in verse 4. Be angry and do not sin, he says. They're evidently angry at David, and David says, hey guys, don't let your anger turn into sin. So my question for you in light of Verse 4 is, do you sin in your anger? Okay. And I, I, think the, I think we all probably should say the answer is yes. Right? Yeah, yes, we do. Now, technically, it is evident, evidently possible to be angry and not sin. Okay? That's a possibility, is certainly. Open. That's what David said. Okay, when you're angry, make sure you're not sinning. But I, I don't know. Maybe this is just me. But that, that seems very, very difficult. And I think we probably should beware when our passions are high, right? Because we're, we sin when, in our anger when our anger is without cause. What I mean by that is it's okay to be angry when you're angry at what makes God angry. Right? But, but quite often we're not, you know, God, listen, God's not angry at the traffic, Okay. Right? He's not angry at your broken lawnmower. As my oldest son reminded me last night, God is not angry when my nail gun cannot make it through a plank of white oak repeatedly over and over again. God is not angry at that. So I should not be as well. So we sin in our anger when we're angry at things that do not make God angry. Moreover, we sin in our anger when our anger is disproportionate. To the cause. Because if you're anything, once again, you're anything like me, I guess it's confession time, but here we go. Um, you, 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 you were angry at some things, minor things, and then like the major things that really should get us angry, we just kind of shrug our shoulders. And so you, the broken appliance is going to get some of us men all bent out of shape, but the, the, the sex trafficking that takes place 15 miles from here, yeah, I'm going to get on with my day. So we, we sin when our anger is not proportionate to what is actually causing it. Moreover, our anger is sinful when it's an eruption, which is pretty much almost all the time it expresses itself in my life. Right when our anger is not a deliberate choice, where we sit down and think, "Okay, should I be angry about this?" In light of what I know about God, in light of what I know about the situation, yes, I should. But quite often, the anger that comes out of us is not based upon a time of reflection. It is just this 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 um, eruption coming from us. Your anger, lastly, is sinful when it's long lasting. And we can, can listen. Continued anger easily becomes bitterness and hatred. I think Paul was right, of course he was, when he said, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, if you could do that, right? you could be angry at the right things in proportion to the, 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 their cause, and it's not an eruption, and it's not long-lasting, then you can be angry and not sin. Go for it. I think probably the wisest thing is, hey, let's put the training wheels on on this one, and we're just going to avoid anger pretty much. Except for very rare occasions. When, when we feel it rise, in fact, it seems David's suggesting the probably best to go, get alone and cool off as you read the rest of verse four. It says, Ponder in your hearts, your own hearts on your beds, and be silent. He's suggesting that we would consider our ways, get alone with God, lie down on our bed, alone and undistracted, think about what's going on in your heart there in silence. I think quiet reflection has a way of clearing the air. When someone confronts you, your immediate, your immediate reaction, isn't it, your at least sinful reaction is to be defensive. But when you're all alone and, and everyone's gone, and it's just you and the Lord, you can consider things more deliberately and, and not in the rush of the events. You can think about them. That's why he adds that little phrase there at the end of verse 4, and, in, and be silent, right? Stop talking and think. Get alone with your heart. Stop defending. Stop accusing. Close your mouth and begin to consider. Stop typing, right? And think, are you sitting in this? Look at your heart. Sit for a while and be with your thoughts. Let them. Let, let you work it out before God, right? Look at yourself honestly. Lord, are you angry at this like I am? Or is it just because my pride is, by, is wounded or I want my way or I'm in a hurry? Right, David says, no, look at yourself. You ever look at yourself? I mean, do you ever, not look at yourself in the mirror, but do you, do you ever look at your, the, your soul in the mirror? Do you ever, is there ever a time in which you, you think you just kind of just review your day, and it's like, okay, how did day go? How was it? Maybe maybe we could do this when you lie in bed, in a moment of silence before the Lord. Lord, how did my day go today? How did I serve you? What opportunities did I miss? Who did I encourage? Who did I offend? Right? Because I think we go thoughtlessly day after day after day after day, as if there is an endless supply of them. And they won't run out. It seems David's exhorting us to say, no, you, you, it's good to pause and be silent and think about your life. Is this the way God w- wants me to go? And even as that little word there, selah, as we saw when we did Psalm 3, it means really to pause and to think. Think about this. Consider your ways before you act. I wonder, my brothers and sisters, when do you reflect on your life? For most of us, it's like December 30th. I wonder if we would do well to reflect more frequently. And David finally, in exhorting us to honor God, says we are to offer true worship there in verse 5. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord, he says. Not quite sure what he means by right sacrifices. That is, what is a wrong sacrifice? It might be a sacrifice offered with a heart that's disengaged. It's easy to have the veneer of Christianity. It's easy to pretend easy to behave like a Christian, easy to have the right words, and it's very easy to do all that when your heart is far from God, isn't it? In fact, uh, sometimes we're pretending to be Christian and we're really stewing about the people that we're upset with. You know, Jesus says, you can't worship me when you're doing that. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. We want to worship God. We want to sacrifice to him. This is what David calls for us to do, but to do it rightly. We do so. We worship God. Why? Because he is our delight. And it's to his delight in God that David turns lastly. As you see, point number three, as we seek God's peace in this troubled life, that we are to delight in God. Look what he says in verse six. There are many who will say, who will show us some good? Now, okay, the question Right in my mind, who are these many who say this? Right, I think what he's referring to is his enemies, and they're they're asking this question: Who will show us some good? Who will be good to us? Who who will take care of us? They seem to be asking which which foreign god is going to help us out, because the god in which we're following, the god of David, isn't 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 cutting it, and this is the core of their problem, just as the core of our problem that we choose. Who, what we worship based upon the personal benefit that it gives back to us. And faith, uh, so even in the church, we see it in the church, faith becomes a way of manipulating God to in order to fulfill our desires. God, you exist to do this for me and do this for me and do this for me. What's in it for me, we often ask. When God covenanted with them and with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, not so that he could just pay out for your days, he covenanted with you so that you might know him. And you might know his ways and walk in them, that you might serve him, that you might follow him. And they're selling their souls, it seems to me, for food on the table and perhaps a nice car in the garage. And David directs them to the ultimate blessing, the very presence of God, as you see there in verse 6. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You ever pray that? God, let the light of your face be lifted upon us. David now, again, is praying, isn't he? He starts in prayer, then he talks to his opponents, and now he's back to praying. But notice his prayer is different here. He says, lift up the light of your face upon us. Verse 1, he says, answer me when I call. Now he's praying corporately. I think that's helpful for us. I don't even know if you notice how Craig was praying. When Craig wasn't praying, he wasn't praying I and me. He was praying us and we. When we pray together... We, um, when we pray privately, we say, God, do this for me, or I love you, and, and so forth. When we pray corporately, when you're in groups, you, it's your best, I think, and following the biblical model to pray uh, uh, us and we, not, not about I and me. And then when we're done praying together, we all, I think, I think it would be biblical for us all to say amen. Thank you, Jeff. All right. <laughs> it would be great for us all to say Amen. See, I, I, I think when you say amen, of course, that's it's not something we made up. It's something we find in Scripture. Jesus said it all the time. It means that what, what was just prayed, you're praying to. Years ago, I was visiting a church. In fact, it was when I was, uh, not, I was without a church, and so Lager and I were visiting churches. I went to one, we went to one particular church, and it was a small church, maybe 80 people. But when they, when they prayed, I tell you, every person in that, in that building said Amen. And it's, I, I still remember it. This is thunderous, unified, the people of God saying, yes, God, do that. It seems David is teaching us even here on how we pray together. And he, he prays, doesn't he? It's just not how he prays, but it's, it's what he prays. He's not praying for a good harvest. He's not praying for material benefits. You notice he says, God, let your presence be known Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, he says. We want to be close to you, O Lord. We want to see your glory, O Lord. We, we want to know you in a, in a more powerful way, O Lord. We want to see you. This, by the way, this prayer is the greatest good found in Scripture. The whole point of the Bible is to get us back to God. The whole point of the history of the redemption is to bring us back into God's presence and we get to Revelation chapter 22 and we see the climax of the whole thing and we read these words they shall see God. And it seems to me that David he says I just want some foretaste of that final blessing. I long for that glimpse. I want to see you. We want to see you. We need to see you. And the reason why it is because the face of God's countenance is what brings us joy. The presence of God is what fills our hearts with delight. As you see in verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And so David imagines an abounding harvest and overflowing wine, and he says all of that pales in comparison to God's face, to God's presence. The tragedy, I think, is that we often settle for far less than God's presence. Often, I think, if we're probably honest, what what is it that you really want? At times, do you want the abundant harvest, or do you want greater intimacy with God? I wonder what we choose well, I think we say, oh, of course, of greater intimacy with God, but I wonder what our lives actually bear out. I wonder if we, we actually see that in our actions. Right? I, I, D- David says no food, no amount of money, no, no, no nice car and with all its gadgets, no house, no vacation, can possibly compare to the glory of God. And yet so often we're ch- we just want the trinkets. It was C.S. Lewis who famously put put it this way, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased, he says. We are. We settle for far too little. May the Lord open our eyes to the supremacy of Christ so that we can see and know his worth, so so that we don't get sucked into pursuing other things, that we would join with David and we would learn to pray, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Let me see your glory. Let me see your grandeur. So we can say, even being up in a tree, being hunted by people who want to take my life, can not be one of the greatest times of my life. Why? Because Not because of all I have, but because of who I have. I have the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we therefore would seek him afresh that we would put down the mud pies that we play with in the slums and join God at sea and bask in his presence he is the greatest of all goods as one has explained he has placed echoes and shadows of his glory in our lives to make us long for something more the majestic roar of a waterfall shakes our bodies The mystery of space tugs at us through a telescope. We feel the burning heat of love. We watch the sun rise over fields. The wondrous things are just appetizers that are meant to make us hungry for the God who created them. You were made to love him and to worship him, and nothing less will please you. In fact, it's interesting to me in verse 7, he uses the language of feasting. He compares feasting with God's presence. I don't know if you've had the opportunity over the years to travel to interesting places. One of the things I enjoy doing, to be perfectly honest, and Leger and I, on occasion, have been able to to go someplace somewhat exotic. Uh, And I'm just not referring to California, by the way. Um, uh, Other places. And even on my missions travels, it's been interesting to be able to spend time in the Middle East or Central America or the South Pacific and so forth. And often when I'm in these places, uh, you get to eat interesting food. Right? Uh, and sometimes, um, sometimes it's not very pleasant, to be perfectly honest. I was once given by a village chief a uh, chicken head enchilada, um, which is just exactly what it sounds like. And th- that evidently was a great honor as they all stood around and watched me. Um, I once in another village had, a, had to drink... Um, the, uh, the spit of a young boy. So um, that was not also pleasant, but we needed a place to stay that night, and I had to do it in order to do so. So sometimes it's not always exciting. I'm getting off topic here. Sometimes it's wonderful, so, right? Sometimes it's, it's incredible. You're trying new things, right? You're feasting throughout this world, and yet there's part of you, isn't there? If you ever experienced something like that, there's part of you that still longs to be home with your wife and kids, if you had the choice between a you know a steak and wine dinner all by yourself or PB and J with your family, I think more times than not you say, give me the PBJ and the people I love. You see, it's the relationships that make the meal. My friends, it's your relationship with the Lord that makes the world a banquet. It's not the world itself. It, it, it's God. It's the light of his face that transforms this world into a feast for us. And he comes to bring us joy. And that that, that, the result of that joyful presence is a lasting peace. As you see finally there in verse 8, that God gives us peace. David says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. David, of course, is still feeling the political pressure. His land was suffering from some kind of disaster. And yet David rests. David says, I'm, I'm not going to stay up in fear. I'm not going to toss and turn. I, I'm not going to lie away waking, uh, worrying. I'm going to lie down and I'm going to sleep. So, how is that possible, David? Well, he tells us there in the anniversary, doesn't he? For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So it's not the bolts on my doors and the dogs downstairs that keeps us safe. It's not the money in your bank account or your retirement account or your reputation or your beauty or all the rest that you trust in. David says, my trust is the one who said to me, I will will never forsake you or leave you. My, My trust is in a Savior who says, no one shall ever snatch you out of my hands. The reality is, if you're in Christ today, you are in his hands, and then you are, in a very profound way, safe. And you can therefore sleep. God has me today, and he shall have me forevermore. What do I have to worry about? I'm in his hands. You trust him like that. Let me ask you, how are you sleeping these days? Do you find rest? Or are you awake, buffeted by cares? Awake. Beaten by the worries of life, all the frights and threats? Or do you lie down in peace because the Lord alone makes you dwell in safety? We see this with our children, I think. If your kids are anything like mine, and I trust they are in this way, they, they often, especially when they're younger, they want, well, they, as you put them down, they want Daddy to snuggle you. Snuggle them, right? Daddy, snuggle me. Right? In fact, my kids still, to this very day, um, they, they fight over who gets to sit next to Daddy at dinner. It's almost on a nightly occasion. And typically, I don't like it when my children fight and are self-serving, but on this case, I make an exception. Right? <laughs> And so, you know, the thing is, I only have a right and a left, and so I've got two kids sitting next to me. And that leaves out five or six, and, and, and so often what I'll do is I'll reach out, and, and for and the little kids especially, and say, okay, well, can we still touch? And we, we can touch, and somehow that gives them some type of joy that, okay, I may not be next to Daddy, but at least I can touch Daddy in case the need arises during dinner. Well, what's going on? You've experienced this, haven't you, parents? They, they want to be near you. They want to be near Daddy. When Daddy puts them down, they still want Daddy to scratch their back and kiss their head and pronounce a blessing over them as he lays on hands, your father's God, watch over you tonight, my child. They want that. I asked them last night, why do you want that? Why do do you ask Daddy, don't forget to say the blessing? Daddy, will you hug me? Don't forget to lay your hand upon my head. Why? And They told me, every one of them, last night, because it makes me feel safe. It puts peace in my heart. In fact, sometimes they, they, they don't want me to leave, especially when they're real young. They don't want you to leave, right, until they're asleep. Well, God, my friend, says to you, if you're in Christ, I won't go even after you're asleep. Amen. Right? I'm gonna, God says, I'm going to spend the whole night in your room. And I will not sleep, and I will not slumber, so that you may dwell in safety. Do you believe that? God watches over you. Maybe that sounds immature, but it's what I believe. That I can put all the problems of today and all the concerns for tomorrow in the hands of my Lord and sleep. They shall not keep me from your gift, Father. Do you know what it's like to sleep in troubling times? Of course, sleep is is a lot like death, isn't it? There's a reason that not only the Bible, but many cultures... Draw a parallel between sleep and death. It, it's a picture of it. It raises the question, I think, is how how are you ever going to learn to lie down in your grave if you haven't learned to lie down in your bed? In fact, I think I I can be honest. I can think of no better verse to put on your headstone than Psalm four eight. If you're looking for one, in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In fact, that is that verse that Martin Luther wanted sung to him when he was dying, and it was, by the way. And, and not just Luther alone, many people have looked to that verse at the time of their death. In fact, on October fifteenth, fifteen 1555, a man named Nicholas Ridley, living the last full day of his life on earth, for the next day, he was going to be burned at the stake publicly as a heretic who believed that people are saved by faith alone in Christ. His brother asked him, he said, Brother, would you like me to spend this night with you? And Ridley, interestingly, said, No. You can go home. I intend to spend a little bit of time with the Lord, and then I intend to sleep as quietly as I have ever done in this life. I said, What a great testimony, not only to this man's faith, but into the God in whom he trusts. How can you sleep the day before your execution? How is it that David is able to sleep in the midst of this turmoil? How is it that Patton is able to spend the night up in a tree in the midst of people looking to kill him? Well, I wonder if part of the answer is found way back in verse 1. We end our time together. I just want to draw your attention to how David addresses God. He says, answer me when I call. And look at this little phrase, O God of my righteousness. You notice he, he doesn't say, my righteous God. As some translations actually put it, literally, it is God of my righteousness. Now, David's not appealing to his own righteousness. He's saying, God, you are the God who gives me righteousness. Right? He he has become righteous because God has credited to him his righteousness. So, So he and we all may dwell in safety tonight and every night, forever and ever and ever, because God has credited us with righteousness. We have been justified. He took all of our sin, you know, all that sin when we pursue trinkets, and all that sin when we erupt in anger, and all that sin when we slander people, and, and, and countless more, and he has taken it, and he heaped it upon his son, Jesus Christ, who had never committed any sin in word, deed, or thought. And nailed him to the cross. And there he poured out his wrath upon his son Jesus for my sin. And for the sin of all who would trust in him. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. And he has now said, if you would place your faith in me, I I will forgive you of all your sin. And I will give you my righteousness. I wonder if you have experienced that. Christians call that salvation. You would even pray God, I I don't come to you on my own goodness. I yield my life to you and trust in Jesus' sacrifice for my salvation. And if you do, my friends, if you you receive that gift, I'm telling you, if you believe it, you can sleep well tonight. You can sleep, in fact, I'm going to sleep well this afternoon, right? Um, In peace. How? Because God has saved me through his son. And as the Bible tells me, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not therefore give us all things in Christ Jesus? Our Father, we are thankful for your word and the encouragement that it is to us. So much practical truth, I think, in this little song. So much we need to learn. I find myself convicted once again, even thinking about it with my brothers and sisters here this morning. I want to be a more righteous man. I want to trust you more faithfully. You have only proven yourself to be good and faithful to me. And I trust in my brothers and sisters here. Let us therefore not occupy our lives sinking after these little trinkets that we busy ourselves with or getting annoyed at things so small. But let us find our joy in the fact that we are yours and you are ours through Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen.